Romans chapter 12, and starting in the ninth verse. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look into your word, as we consider the kind of love really that Paul has called us to, the kind of love that responds appropriately, that's the logical, rational response, the reasonable response to the mercy that you have shown us, to the way in which you have loved us. Father, we pray that as we consider that kind of love, and specifically the way that love looks within the church. This week, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church that obeys your command to love the brothers, to care for one another within your body, that you would be exalted in it. Help us to understand your word. Help us to love it and rejoice over it. Help us to repent as we see our failings. Help us to look to you for the grace necessary, for the power necessary to follow your commands. And help us to always obey you, not out of a sense of obligation to somehow earn your favor, but out of a sense of obligation because you have shown us great favor in Jesus Christ as a response to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, As you heard me in prayer, I was talking about the fact that we're going to be talking this week about the kind of love that we as Christians are to show one another in the church. And this passage, Romans 12, 9 through 16, really focuses in on the church and the kind of love we show to one another. And then the next part, 17 through 21, really focuses on the way we love our enemies or those outside the church is the category here. So there's the love within the body that's shown and the love outside of it. And what you notice if you look at this is just after Paul talks about the importance of the body, the church, just after he talks about the importance of it and the importance of it to the Christian life specifically and the fact that we have a diversity of gifts, just after he talks about that, he launches into a discussion about love within the body. In other words, first he talks about in order to live out the Christian life, you need the body of Christ. Don't be prideful recognize your need for the body of Christ, and recognize you all have a diversity of gifts for the purpose of building one another up. But at the same time, 
right after he does that, he launches into a discussion about love within the body. And the question is, why? Why does he do that? You know, this is not the only place Paul's ever done that. Just after talking about gifts and the need for unity in the body and the need for one another in the body, um, he also talks about the idea of love and commitment in other places. Look with me, um, if you could, briefly at Ephesians. So keep your hand there in Romans chapter 12. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. He seems to always tie this idea of love and unity and care for the body, humility, etc., together with the idea of gifts. If you look there at chapter 4 of Ephesians, if you're in Romans, you go to First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, it says, I therefore, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, this is Paul talking again, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he goes on, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes in and talks about the fact that we have a diversity of gifts. But first he talks about this idea that we are to be humble and loving and pursuing unity within the body. And then he ties into the idea of gifts. If you go to 1 Corinthians, if you jump back a couple of books, just the book right after Romans, and you look at 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 12, Paul has an, probably the, the, the most teaching Paul ever does on gifts is with regard to the Corinthian church or spiritual gifts. With regard to the Corinthian church in chapters 12 through 14. But if you look at what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about gifts. And if you go to verse 14, 12, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be as it is? There are many parts, yet one body. So he's driving after this idea that we have one body of Christ and we all play various parts in it. We all have various gifts within this one body, but none of us are any less a part of the body just because our gifts are different. He actually goes on and says in verse 21, The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we'd bestow, bestow the greatest honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. And he just goes on and on about the need for the parts of the body. And he goes on and talks about the various gifts. And he says in the end of chapter thir- 12, excuse me, if you look there, down to um, verse 31, he uses this phrase, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And actually, unfortunately, because of the way this is phrased in, in English and in the Greek, we sometimes run into problems because the Greek here in this verse, earnestly desire the higher gifts, scholars argue over whether this is a command, you should earnestly desire the higher gifts, 
or whether it's a statement of fact, you are in fact earnestly desiring the higher gifts. I think because of the structure of the sentence, he actually is coming after the fact that they are in fact, Corinth is a church that is pursuing the higher gifts. And then he goes on, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Notice, here's the contrast. You're running after gifts, but let me show you a more excellent way. It's okay to desire the higher gifts. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1, he tells us, it commands us to pursue them. But here he's talking about the idea that you're pursuing gifts and you're neglecting the higher thing. And what's the higher thing? Go down into chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you hear that? Even if I'm martyred, I'm martyred for the faith, but I don't love, it's, it's nothing. And he goes on, he says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Do you hear that? Every time Paul talks about gifts, every time he talks about these idea of the manifestation, the empowerment of the Spirit in our lives, every time he ties it to the idea that we have to love one another. Every time. Why? Why does Paul tie together the concept of gifts and love? Why? Because God did not save you. I want you to hear this. God did not save you to be a blessed individual. He did not empower you with the Spirit for your own good. He saved you into his body so that you would be a blessing to others and so that others will be a blessing to you. He empowered you with the Spirit for the benefit of others and empowered others with the Spirit for your benefit. We need each other in the body of Christ, and loving one another is not optional. In fact, it's core. It's essential. It's central to what the church is. The church is the body whom God loved and whom Jesus died for. He sent his Son to die for his church. He loves her. And she is a body, a group of people that are formed by the love of God and exist for the purpose of demonstrating that love to a watching world in the way that they love one another and the way that they love those who are outside. Jesus tells us, in fact, in, in John chapter 15, that we are to love one another even as, don't you hear this condition? Even as I have loved you. Hear that? Love one another even as I have loved you. What does that kind of love look like? What does the love of Christ look like? It lays down its life for others. It lays down reputation. It lays down preferences. It lays down position. It lays down its very life for others. 
It's not the kind of love the world has, in other words. It's not the kind of love that's only committed to one another as long as I'm getting something from someone else. You see, we're to be committed to self-giving love, not committed to self-receiving love. The world is committed to self-receiving love. We're to look different. Look at what we've done to marriage in our culture. As soon as this person, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, this is the bottom line. As soon as this person no longer makes me happy, I'm out of here. What have they said fundamentally about their idea of love? Love is a, a affection in which I participate in, in which the other person shows something to me. I receive something, and it makes me happy. And when I cease receiving that, I'm out. I've fallen out of love. You don't fall into love. You fall into a ditch. Okay? Love is something that you actively choose to give to someone. You sacrifice for them. Do I lay down my life for that other person? Did I give up my personal happiness in this momentary situation for their sake? Nope. What I did is I packed my bags and hit the road because ultimately I'm committed to self-love. We treat relationships like we treat every other product. We, we sort of have, in, I think, in our culture now, this sort of idea of a consumeristic kind of love. It's like a commodity or a product. Well, I love this product, and so I buy it. And as soon as it no longer has any usefulness to me, then I discard it, and I go buy something else I love now. That's essentially what we do with relationships in our culture, with marriage. See, I'm tired of this person. They aren't providing for me the thing that I hope to get in this relational exchange. And because they're not providing it anymore, I'm done. And now I'm going to this person who's now providing for me what I'm hoping for in a relational exchange. See, I never had a long-term commitment to that person where I said, I'm going to lay down my life for them. them. I'm going to sacrifice for them. It's a very short-term commitment. And it it can be as long as they continue to accommodate what I want. Then it's over. Is it really any different when you look at the way we relate to each other in the world, the way that we relate to each other in marriage, in our culture? Is that really any different, though, than the way Christians see the church? Do you hear what I said about that? Is it really any different? See, we can look out at the world and go, you know what? You don't understand the kind of love that marriage requires. You don't understand the kind of love that interpersonal relationships require. Let me ask this question, beloved. Do you understand the kind of love that you're supposed to have for the church? For this local, visible body of believers? Not love for this invisible, spread across the world, group of people who you'll never come in contact with, they're easy to have generic love for. The love that you're supposed to have for the people who you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in the body of Christ. Don't we have the tendency in the American church, in the Western church, to leave the church when it really starts to cost us in some way? Now, let me put a qualification here. I'm not talking about leaving churches 
that have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ or leaving churches that are not committed to the word that are filled up with bad doctrine. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about leaving churches where there is gross, unrepentant sin in the leaders and they are now unqualified and no one removes them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm t- Jesus leaves those churches. Do you understand that? Okay. I'm talking about when we leave a body of Christians because we assess that they don't have enough to offer me. They might not have the cool programs that I wanted. They, um, I might be irritated by their decisions. Or I might um, discover, unbeknownst to me beforehand, that their leaders are sinners too. They have weaknesses and even personality traits I don't like. So I leave. Or maybe others in the church irritate us. And I don't want to be in that relationship with those people anymore because that person has sinned against me, so I'm done. In those cases, the relationships are becoming difficult and they don't offer us much, so we feel justified justified to bail on them. We don't think, this is my chance. Here's what we ought to be thinking. This is my chance to now demonstrate what sacrificial love looks like. Here is my chance to now love as Jesus has loved me. To lay down my life, to sacrifice for this other person because it's not easy for me to be in a relationship with them anymore. Consequently, our love looks no different from the world's love. No different. And we wonder why the world does not see in the church a compelling vision of the way things are supposed to be. Don't we? Wonder, why does the world not see in the church a compelling vision of the way things are supposed to be? You know why? Because we bounce around churches like the average player bounces around with girlfriends. That's why. But this kind of love takes humility. It takes a humility which springs from a deep understanding of the grace of God. An understanding of the grace of God against the backdrop of the sinfulness of my sin. Understand that? It's what it takes. To return briefly to the example of the Corinthian church, think about the church at Corinth. Think about it. This church is a complete mess. Paul calls them to a long-term commitment to this body, to love this body. This body, this church may be the worst church I've ever heard of that has orthodox doctrine. I mean, think of the problems with this church Paul addresses. He, he talks about this. They're having dispute over the leaders. They're actually breaking into camps. Some like Paul, some like Apollos. They're fighting over which of these guys are better leaders for the church. They're actually dividing up over these issues. Chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4, they're actually making accusations about Paul's motives and actions. They're discussing amongst themselves the weaknesses that they see in the Apostle Paul, the guy who planted the church. In chapter 5, they were allowing gross sin to happen in the church, sin that is even frowned upon by pagans. You know what the sin is? A man was sleeping with his stepmom, and everybody in the church knew it, and there was no church discipline happening. Imagine being in a church where they're fighting over who the better leader 
of the churches. Paul planted, Apollos watered. God gave the increase is what Paul drives them out. But they're planting over who they like better, the founding pastor or this new guy. Right? They're fighting over that. They're making all kinds of accusations about the apostle, questioning his motives, talking about his character amongst one another, disparaging him. Okay? They're actually going even a step further than that. There's actually a man in the church sleeping with his stepmom who's also in the church. Everybody knows it. They know an outside world would be finding that abhorrent and they're not doing anything about it. Most of us would have left this church by now. But it goes on. They were suing each other in public courts of law. And it goes further. There was rampant sexual immorality. They had some people who were participating in idolatrous feasts of false religions. I'm just to chapter 10. Chapter 11, they are taking advantage of the poor at communion. Can you imagine? When they got together for communion, it's different than what our communion looks like. When they got together for communion, they had a whole meal. And what would happen is the rich were being treated better than the poor. So the rich were given first place in line. The rich were going in and making themselves fat and actually getting drunk off the communion wine, which tells you something about what kind of juice they had, right? They were getting drunk. You don't get drunk off grape juice, incidentally. Okay? They're getting drunk off the communion wine. And what happened? The poor are being left without any food. And Paul actually says this of them, of their worship service. Hear this. He says, it's actually to your detriment when you come together to worship. Can you imagine the apostles saying that about a worship service? Your corporate worship gathering is actually harmful to you. In chapters 12 through 14, we find out they're abusing the spiritual gifts. And if that's not enough, in chapter 15, we find out they have some kind of problem with baptizing for dead people. This church has massive issues. And yet Paul calls them to look at how he addresses them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 4. This church, this is how Paul addresses them. I give thanks to my God always for you. This is a church that's disparaging him personally that's ripping each other apart, that's participating in sexual immorality, that's participating in kinds of sexual sin that even pagans are abhorred by, that's participating in idolatrous feasts, that's ripping each other apart over charismatic, non-charismatic issues, where the rich are oppressing the poor. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In other words, This is a church that's a Christian church. They're a church that is looking to Jesus as their hope by the grace of God. And they're this messed up. Paul's thanking God for them. Look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any spiritual gifts. He's even thanking God for the grace of God that's on them for the spiritual gifts they have that they're abusing. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, and look at verse 8, who will sustain you 
to the end. You, you want to talk about this doctrine of eternal security? Here you go. Paul is telling them that Jesus Christ will sustain this group of people to the end. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here Paul's, Paul's focus here is on the gospel. So what Paul says is, you're Jesus' bride. You're a mess of a bride. But you're his bride. You need to clean up a lot of stuff. You've got serious sin issues in this church that need to be dealt with. You have serious problems of unity, or disunity, I should say, that need to be dealt with. But you're his bride because you're looking to his son as your hope. And so I thank God for you that that's true. I thank my God for you because of the grace he's shown to you. See, here's the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners, deeply, comprehensively flawed people. That's what we are. We are those who stand in the judgment of God. That's who we are. And God, in his great love for us, sent his son to live perfectly in our stead. Everything we failed to do, Jesus, in fact, did in our place. And then Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin that we had committed. The penalty due to us, he paid for it. All of it. Not just your past sin, but your present sin and your future sin. He paid for it all. All of it. Every sin. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death. Ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns forever. He sent his spirit into us to give us life. So that we would believe. So that we would turn to him to change our hearts. To indwell us. To empower us to love one another. That's all he had. All of that is received through faith. And what is faith? Faith is not this thing, this virtue that you somehow drum up in your inner man. Faith is simply the recognition that I have no virtue. I'm bankrupt and I look to Jesus. That's what faith is. I look to him and I know he's my hope and I know he's my righteousness and I know my righteousness will never change because my righteousness is at the Father's right hand and it is the same. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so God can thank, we can be thankful to God for the grace we see in one another because of the work God has done in us. And that's what Paul says about Corinth. This is not a church, as many problems as they have, this is not a church that has yet bailed on the gospel. They're awfully close, but they haven't bailed yet. And so Paul is refusing to bail on them. And he tells the church at Corinth, nor should you. What drives this is humility that springs from an understanding of grace. That's what drives it. No matter how messed up these people are, what Paul's saying, no matter how messed up they are, I'm just as in need of grace as them. And the gospel's present among them. This is Jesus' church. And God will declare them holy on that great day because they're in Christ. Thus, I will not bail on them. I will commit to sacrificially loving them. You see, this is how Christian love looks different from the world's love. It is long-term commitment 
to comprehensively flawed people who are looking to Jesus as their only hope. Do you hear that? Whereas the world's love, the kind of love we often exercise, is short-term commitment to a group of people until I discover how badly they need to be looking to Jesus as their only hope. Understanding then, this is the basic structure of love within the body. Long-term commitment to comprehensively flawed people who were looking to Jesus as their hope. That's the basic structure of love in the body. I want to consider seven aspects of this kind of love in Romans 12. So look back to Romans 12 with me. And I'm going to go through those quickly. That was all an introduction. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 9 I want to look at seven aspects of the kind of love that we're called to in the body of Christ. Seven aspects. The first one, verse 9, let love be genuine. Now, what we'll see here is a whole series of commands after let love be genuine, to which some commentators say is basically this sort of series of staccato commands. They're not really connected to one another. However, I'm agreeing with those group of commentators who actually believe these commands are springing from the same well of love. They're all around that. And the reason I do is because Paul keeps coming back to this. If you look at verse 9, let love be genuine. Then look at verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. And then he goes down through here. And if you go all the way down, he starts talking about the way that we even love our enemies. All the way through this passage. And what he says first about love is it needs to be genuine. Now this is the word, by the way, it's not stated this positively. Do you want to know what the word is? In Greek, the word is actually the word that, it's, it's, it's the negation of the word hypocritical. In other words, it's a negatively stated word in Greek. In, in English, we say, let love be genuine. That sounds more positive, doesn't it? Well, what it actually says is, let love be not hypocritical. It actually says, not hypocritical love. The idea of hypocrisy in the first century, this idea where you, you put on a, a mask, Hypocrites were those who actually starred in plays. They were stage actors. They would get up and they would put on a mask to cover up their real identity, to look like someone they're not. We take that word hypocrite over into the Christian language, Jesus specifically does, and start saying that there are a bunch of people who are running around with masks on pretending to be someone they're not. When Paul comes out and says this, let love be genuine. Don't let it be hypocritical. Don't be a glad hander. You guys ever seen the glad handers? You know they glad hand you? They come in on, they, nice to see you. And you know they don't want to see you. They might even be sick to their stomach seeing you. You're not really sure, but they glad hand you like they're happy to see you. They're, they're basically play acting. They're pretending. Are there people you pretend with? In other words, are there people in the body you say, I love that person, but I don't like that person. In fact, I can't stand being in that person's presence. But I love them. That's a weird kind of love. Can you imagine I tell my wife, I love you, but I can't stand being in your presence, honey. But I love you. I'm committed to you. But I I don't want to be around you ever. Right? That's not love. When we're committed to love, that's not genuine love. We're committed to genuine love. There is a constant seeking of the Lord, praying, Lord, give me a deep abiding affection for this person. Not let me be around them even though I can't stand them. Change my heart toward them so I'm not phony. 
So have real abiding love for them. Give me affectionate feelings, kindness, love, the desire to see them, to love them. Let it be genuine. Second, he says this. I've got to hurry. He says this. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. It's actually strange that the second thing he says is, that, genuine, that love really is not only genuine or not hypocritical, but it hates evil and clings to good. That's what love does. Hates evil and clings to good. It's really strange, though, to use that word. You say love, and then he says right after that, hate. Right? That first word, abhor, is the word hate. Let your love be genuine. Hate. What is evil? It's kind of a strange thing to put together, but here's what Paul's getting at. He's not talking about a kind of love that's just sheer sentimentality. He's talking about love that is godly, love that has real definition. He's talking about a love that hates, listen to what it hates. It hates what harms the object of your love. It hates what harms the object of your love, and it clings to what is good for the object of your love. As John Stott British commentator actually said, love is so passionately devoted to the beloved object that it hates every evil which is incompatible with his or her highest welfare. What does this look like? When I see people's lives being destroyed by sin, whether that sin was inflicted by themselves, that sin was inflicted by others, or that sin was just the corruption of this world in the way that it harms them. You know what I'm talking about? There's sin they inflict on themselves that harms them. There's sin that's inflicted by others that harms them. And a lot of times people are just, inf- are just harmed by sin and what, how it's corrupted this world. Therefore, they get diseases. All these things that we have that lead to death, you know what I'm talking about, are a result of sin. No matter what, whenever I see it and it harms people I love, I hate sin more. Don't you? I hate it even more. That's what Paul's saying. And I cling to what's good for it. When I see something that contributes to the welfare of a loved one, whether it's another person contributing to their welfare, whether it's a good decision that contributes to their welfare, whether it's medicine that contributes to their welfare, whatever it is, I cling to that thing for their welfare. Parents, you know what this is like. You have children. You send them off to get married. If you have a daughter and she is married to a man who cares for her and loves her, don't you stick to that? You're excited about that man in her life. But if she has a man who abuses her and harms her, what do you do? You abhor him, don't you? That's what kind of love Paul's talking about here. And most of all, we should cling to the gospel. Because ultimately the gospel is that which is able to save them from hell and give them Jesus. Third, love not only needs to be genuine, love not only hates what is evil and clings to what's good, but love is an abiding commitment. Hear that? An abiding commitment. I've talked a lot about commitment, so I just want to focus on two aspects of it here in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What does Paul say? First, your love is to be a brotherly love. Brothers, you you know what a brotherly relationship is like. Brothers sometimes have rough times together, don't they? Sometimes they fight and feud 
and have problems with each other, but generally, except in the really deeply messed up families, Paul's talking about the general trend here. The general trend is that brothers are long-term committed to each other because they're a family. And we're supposed to love one another as we love a brother in our own family. That's what he's saying. Second, he says that we're supposed to show honor. In fact, what he says is we're supposed to outdo one another in showing honor. Like a competition. You will not outdo me in showing you honor. I will out-honor you, right? It's essentially what he's saying. As parents, let, let me ask you this. As parents, we don't really become jealous when our children receive honor, do we? I'll give you an example. My son plays football, and he happens to be very good at it, which I'm proud. I mean, the first time he ran a touchdown, I started to tear up. Uh, really. Why? Because I was terrible at it, and so I was, I was terrible. So I was enjoying living vicariously through him, right? Enjoying it. I'm going to live many more years vicariously through him in football because I was terrible. And I'm watching him, and every time he gets these little skulls, they give these rewards for good play, and he gets them every week, it seems like. Every time they come together, the coach gives you little skulls for their helmet for good play. Every time he gets one, I don't sit there and go, man, I'm envious. I'm really upset that he's being shown honor. It really bothers me to see him being honored in this way. It's not what I do. I am thankful to see him honored that way. I rejoice in him being honored in that way. However, what we tend to do is we tend to have an attitude with other Christians when they're shown honor that we wish it was being shown to us. We become envious. Sometimes when they're shown honor, we do this kind of thing. So this person gets honored, and we're talking to a friend, and we go, well, I'm really glad they were honored in that way because they do do a really good job there. But, you know, it's too bad they have this other problem in their life, isn't it? What is that? Last year, Jason outdid me in showing honor. Outdid me in showing honor. And I'm working hard to try to outdo him in showing honor. We're to be for those in the body. If we're showing each other honor, it means we are maximizing God's grace in their life in the way that we treat them and talk of them. And we are minimizing the sin in their lives in the way we treat and discuss them. Now, I'm not saying don't confront a brother who's in gross, unrepentant sin or who's in doctrinal error because that would be unloving as well. And I'm not saying that we ought to have a low commitment to holiness in the body or righteousness in the body. However, I am saying that we should not nitpick each other to death. We should maximize grace in one another's lives, not boil each other down to our sins. Love should cover a multitude of sins in the body of Christ. First, First Peter chapter 4. Listen to Proverbs 17.9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Listen, we shouldn't be repeating matters to one another. If you want to sit around and discuss your brothers and sisters in Christ with others in the body, even your own spouse, why don't you focus your energy on honoring those you're speaking out by speaking about the grace of God you see in their lives rather than what you think is missing in their lives. Talk about what you're thankful for in them. 
How much more gracious a body, how much more love would flow in his body if we were all committed to using our tongues to talk about the way we are thankful for the grace of God in the lives of others. And how much more readily we would all receive rebuke for sin from one another if we knew the other people were deeply committed to us, always trying to outdo us and showing honor to one another. Four. We need to be energized by the Spirit. He says in verse 11, our love should be energized by the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. I think that there is the Holy Spirit. Serve the Lord. What he's saying is we're to be zealous and boiling over in the Spirit of God. Bubbling over in the Spirit of God. Zealous, fervent, joyful, enthusiastic, empowered by the Holy Spirit. However, what he isn't saying is that we just need to participate in some kind of raw enthusiasm where we all jump around and act excited and then go home and sin against each other. It's not what he's talking about. We we ought to have the jumping around being thankful and joyful. But on top of that is the idea that the reason we're thankful is because of the grace of God and that's going to issue in our service to the Lord. That's what he says here. It has to issue in service to the Lord. Zealousness, joy, fervency has direction. And the direction of it isn't just to be enthusiastic in an end in of itself, but to be enthusiastic for the purpose of serving God. I, I sometimes talk to charismatics who tell me, you know, if only your church had more jumping around and excitement and manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. And I say, yeah, I wish. To be honest with you, I wish more of you would jump around a little bit. I really do. I like to, and so if you'd join me, that'd be fun. But the fact is, one of the things I often drive them to is, I understand what you're saying, but I want you to know that I I don't want our people to just be enthusiastic or joyful. I want it to have direction. What do you mean? I don't want to just see manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit, because the gifts of the Spirit have an end in mind. They are means They're not the end. They're means. I don't care how many people speak in tongues, how many people prophesy, how many people have incredible manifestations. I don't care. Those are all means to an end. If the end isn't being reached, it doesn't matter how many of the gifts are being manifested. The end is what? The fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, general self-control. That's what the end is. That's the goal. It's maturity in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Holy Spirit. And that is to be directed toward serving the Lord. Fifth, love endures all things. It endures all things. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Our love is to be one that rejoices in the hope of Christ's return. Thus is patient in trial and is constant in prayer. Do you hear that? It endures all things. When people are in the midst of trials, in the midst of trials, we come alongside of them and we together with them rejoice in the hope of the coming of Christ. And we call on one another and demonstrate patience to one, toward one another. You've got to be patient, brother. When I was in the midst of a trial at one point in the midst of this last year, I called a pastoral friend of mine and I said, I just feel like I can't take it any longer. And he demonstrated this kind of love to me. You know what he said? He said, Chad, 
Jesus could return today. Are you hoping in that? And is that giving you patience in this tribulation and leading you to prayer? And it did. But I wasn't the time he asked. That's what love does. Sixth, love cares for others. It cares for others, both in tangible physical help and in sympathetic or affectional care. Do you hear that? Two different kinds of care there. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here is the actual tangible physical help. Contribute to the needs of the saints. You have saints, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are financially hurting. Contribute to it. Help them out. What are you supposed to do? Physically helping them in need. It also says, show hospitality. What's that talking about? Well, people would travel in that day. They didn't stay in hotels. They needed a place to stay. You're to show them hospitality. You're showing them physical care and help. That's what love looks like. Love cares for people. It's hospitable. It actually shows up in something. I can say I love my wife or I love my children or I love you, but if it doesn't show up in me actually doing something for you, so what that I said it? Say, I love the poor. Really? Do you do anything for them? If you don't do anything for them, you don't love them. Love shows kindness and generosity to others. That's what it does. He also says it's got an affectional or sympathetic expression. Not just in tangibly doing stuff, but in sympathizing. Look at verse 15. We'll come back to verse 14 next week. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It means I'm I'm joining people in their joy and I'm joining people in their weeping because I love them. So there's an affectional tie between us. It shows itself in care for others. Seventh, finally, love is humble. Love within the body is humble. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. That's like-mindedness. You know, I've using the word mind quite a bit. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Or in some places it says, some version says, never be wise in your own sight. It's a call for like-mindedness. So how do we have harmony? How do we have unity and like-mindedness in the body? Well, first of all, we can't be haughty. Can't be haughty. We can't think we're better than others. That's what haughtiness is. And specifically here he comes after the idea that those who are wealthy in the body looking down on those who are poor financially in the body. But it goes beyond that. When you are spiritually more wealthy in some way because of the sanctifying work God has done in your life and you're looking down your nose at those who are poorer in that sense because they haven't matured to the level you have, right? once you reach that point where you're actually looking down your nose at somebody, your maturation hasn't reached the point that you think it has because you're haughty, you're prideful, says, don't be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't be so impressed with your take on everything. You want to have unity in the body? Then you can't be overly impressed that your wisdom is the pinnacle of all wisdom. 
when leaders in the body make decisions or other in the body come to conclusions, you can't be like, you know what? If they'd only done what I think, then the body would be going forward rightly. I just can't handle it. Obviously, their decisions show a low commitment to holiness and righteousness, and their decisions show a low commitment to what's best for the body of Christ. What I think, that's what shows the best thing, because my opinion, man, it is the pinnacle of wisdom. That will cause disunity in the body probably faster than anything else is when we are impressed with ourselves. The people of God will never be together on the mission of God if their pride keeps them from unity. Do you hear that? Let me drive you back to verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. He says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. See, the church that understands that all of our activities and all of our affections are motivated by the therefore, by the mercies of God. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, The people, the church that is driven by the gospel is the church that will be on mission for God in a manner that pleases him. Let me pray. Father, we ask ask that you would be honored in this church that we would love one another, that our love would be genuine. Father, that it would manifest itself in the many ways we've talked about this morning, that we would outdo one another in showing honor, that we'd be patient in affliction and tribulation, that we would be rejoicing in hope, that we would hate what harms, what brings harm to those we love, cling to what is good for them, what's to their benefit. Father, we would be a people who physically care for the needs of one another, who have our affections so deeply tied to them that we, we, uh, we weep with them and rejoice with them that we'd be a people who seek to show hospitality, that we would be a people who are not haughty and prideful, but a people who recognize that it is only by your grace that we are saved. It is only by your Son that we would rejoice in you and look to you and that you would bring love in this body in a manner that the watching world sees and says that's the way it should be. For the honor of your son's name we pray this. Amen.